All right, I loved, I loved that worship tonight. You know what I loved? I love that middle song where it gets, I'm, I get pumped up when it starts going, build your church, build your church, build it from the ground up. I just, man, it gets me going. And especially when I think about what we're going to talk about tonight. We're wrapping up this series called The Basics. And I hope this has been a blessing to you. We've been talking about those fundamental practices of the Christian life. Important things, essential things. You want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? These are the basics. We've talked about from week one, how do I spend time with Christ? Can you become a disciple if you don't spend time with the Lord every day? You need time with Jesus every day. Week two, we talked about how can I study the Bible? How do I experience his word? How do I get the most out of it? And we talked about some helpful methods to studying the word of God. Week three, how do I pray effectively? We looked at what the word says about going to the Lord in prayer, communing with him. Then we talked about how to share my faith. And we gave you a tried and true method of evangelism, of, of, of sharing the gospel. And that was called Romans Road. A lot of great methods out there. That was just one that we happened to look at uh, that particular week. And then we, uh, we looked last week at why should I serve. We talked about the concept, the paradigm of serving, that this is God's design. And, uh, you know, if you don't serve, you don't stick. It's been said. And we, we talked about all the ways that you can serve and the vitality of all of that. Well, tonight, we're looking at something, uh, which is what I had in mind when I was getting pumped up about that Build Your Church song. Because all of that stuff that I just talked about, that I mentioned, uh, is, is, is tied together by this concept tonight. None of that is done in a vacuum. The context of the journey of the believer is that it's done in community. It's done in community. I want you all to look around right now. Where you are tonight, the paradigm that you are engaged in tonight is what we're going to talk about. And this is what God uses. This is the glue that pulls it all together because the paradigm for community is what God calls the church. The church. Now, when you say the word church, there may be a lot of things that pop into your mind. All right, when people hear that word, they think of different things. Some people think of church services, like this one right here. Now, you're here, so hopefully you're here because you like it. You like church services. Some people, they think of church services, and they just want to, like, their eyes roll back in their head because they think it's boring. Some church services are boring. I've been in those, all right? They can be dull. I don't think ours are dull. Some people might. Uh, you know, have people fallen asleep when I've preached it's probably happened all right i'm not going to get too hung up on that i'm in good company the apostle paul had that happen to him in the book of acts you know uh, i think it was acts uh, uh i don't know what chapter that was he had a guy acts 20 he had a guy named eutychus he was preaching in a place called troas was paul he was he was going a little long he was a little long-winded okay so when people say, Pastor Scott, you went a little long, I'm like, you, you talk to the Apostle Paul, and then you come back to me, all right? This guy, Eutychus, fell asleep, fell out a window. Three stories, hit the ground, died. Now, Paul went down, raised him from the dead, but I just want you to know, fair warning, if you fall asleep and manage to die during one of my sermons, I am not raising you from the dead, Okay. So that's not going to happen. But some people think of church services when they hear the word church. Uh, some people think of 
pastors. They hear church, they just, they just think of pastors. Some people think of a particular denomination. Maybe you were raised Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian. When people say the church, what do a lot of people think of? The Roman Catholic Church, okay? And so we think of those environments. Maybe we think of the squabbles that we have experienced in those environments or the, the bad uh, uh, news that is generated in some of those contexts. Some people think of a building when they think of church. A sizable building, which I'm grateful for our building. Uh, but some people, you know, in, in church, they, the pastors are, are longing for a, a, a grand facility. They see that as a mark of success of church or whatever. What does the Bible say about this paradigm called the church? Well, the true definition of a church is so much greater than what we first think of. And uh, we're going to look at a few of those tonight. Would you just bow with me really quick here? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would, well, that we would receive with an open heart this concept called the church. What a beautiful thing to be a part of, God. It is truly one of the basics. Because if we're serious about this journey called discipleship, well, your, your design for how that is to take place is within the confines of the entity that you have created, that you laid down your life to see come into being. This beautiful thing called the church. And I pray that we would embrace it with open arms and and jump right into what you've got in store. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first thing in your notes that Scripture gives us, that it presents uh, that the church is, is the people of God. The church is presented in Scripture as the people of God. Emphasis on people. Remember this? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see my fingers. No, see all the people. And that's what the church is. It's not a building. It's you. It's you. Look at what Peter said. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now that's fascinating language because we've just had an entire Old Testament, and, and I believe this to be true, where Israel is referred to as all of that. A set apart, a nation. For the Lord, a holy people, a chosen people. By the way, I still believe Israel is a chosen people. They were the people through whom Messiah came. God made a covenant with them, made a promise to them. Does God break his promises? He does not. Is he, has he forgotten all about Israel? He has not. Is the church replacing Israel? Not on your life. But make no mistake, the church, you, are a chosen people. Absolutely. Peter goes on, he says, you're God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Who's glad to be called out of darkness into wonderful light tonight? Amen? Me too. Once, he says, you were not a people. Once upon a time, you were not. You were not a people. You didn't exist. Here is represented a people that once was not. All right? He says... Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. God created a people. And it's, it's a people that is not defined by ethnicity. There's no bloodline here except the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And so we are the people of God, all right? Now, are you, are you a member of the people of God just because you attend church on Sunday? No more than being in a garage makes you a car. Okay? And so you are... Uh, you are by faith 
one of the people of God. It is faith alone in the grace of Jesus Christ alone that saves you, that makes you a Christian. That said, attending services like this, unifying with other believers, is absolutely an important part of the journey, this, this pathway of discipleship. And there's a sub-point in your notes I want you to get, which is this, that we think of our relationship with God as being vertical, okay? But it's also horizontal. How so? Well, his spirit indwells you. But are you the only one? No, everyone who names the name of Christ, who, have, who has trusted in Jesus as their Savior, guess what? His Spirit indwells them too. And so where, whereas you are, are going to be influenced by the Lord Jesus in your daily relationship with Him, when you meet with Him, when you study the Word, when you pray on your own, you will magnify that influence if you will be in community with other believers who are also indwelled. You see? And so God is now able to come at you from all sides because he can speak through his people of which you are part. That's his design. It is not his design that you wander through life, that you just roam through life as a lone ranger. There are no lone rangers, all right? We're part of a posse. We've got community, and God models that. God models community. You know how in the original uh, in the original, the days of creation, we see it depicted even in Genesis. The word, the name for God is Elohim. Elohim, it's a plural name. That I am on the end of that denotes plurality. God, there's a plurality within God. That doesn't mean that there's multiple gods. It means that God is one, but he is three in one. The Trinity models community. For you and I. And so he models this that we are to be in relationship with one another just as God is in relationship with himself. And so we want to be obedient to be in community. But you and I are, are part of something much, much bigger than just ourselves. And in scripture, this, this thing called the church is expressed in, in multiple ways that I want to show you right now. They're already in your notes. But here's some expressions of the church in scripture. First, there's the universal church, it's not just Lamb's Chapel. There are Christians all over this county. There are Christians all over the state, all over this nation, and in fact, around the world. And, and the church is growing around the world, although in some parts of the world, I'd say it's, it's probably in decline. I think in Western Europe, there's in evidence, there's some evidence that it's in decline there. You've got other religions moving in that are growing at a faster rate than Christianity. Christianity spread from Israel into Asia Minor and then into Europe from there and it came to our shores and it, it, it expanded quite rapidly as we've talked about in our parable study here recently. Uh, but uh, those, those, that, that inception phase in, in Europe has kind of waned over the years. Uh, you could say that it's declining in America. There is some data that seems to support that, that fewer Christians uh, polled today, or fewer people polled say that they're Christians today. I don't know that that's true. I'm inclined to think that we're just living in a day when people are more honest. You know, it used to be people say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, you know. But we got more people today saying, no, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I don't do that. I don't say, I don't, do, I don't believe all that. And so I, I think I'd rather have people that legit are the blood-bought, born-again, gung-ho uh, people of God that will, will not be ashamed to admit that than just anybody and everybody that just claims to be of Christ. But in other parts of the world, it's absolutely growing. Parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, the Pacific Islands. We used to send missionaries to those places. Now they're sending missionaries to us. 
So that's, that's something. But we see the universal church, Ephesians 3, verse 10. Paul says that, uh, uh, he says that so that the church, through the church, the manifold witness of God, wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And in verse 21, he says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He's not talking about a specific local church. He's talking about a global church. That's the concept, that all believers are part of God's great church. And within the universal church around the world, there will be found, in your notes, the persecuted church. There are people that are persecuted uh, because they name the name of Christ. In some countries... Christians are enslaved. They are tortured. They are assassinated. They are imprisoned. They are beaten to death. Uh, Around the world, it's said that 200 million Christians live in daily fear of police or of vigilantes. Uh, They live in nations where there is persecution. Now, I follow Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs lists nations where persecution of Christians happens. They only list Officially, the nations where that is state-sponsored, you understand. You can't categorize a country as being a country where there's persecution unless the government is in support of the persecution. So you're not actually able to talk about the nations where persecution happens, but it's just a matter of the government just kind of looking the other way. And there are a lot of nations like that. India is a nation like that. I've spent some time over there. Uh, When I was younger, we worked with a ministry that partnered with another ministry on the ground. In uh, the province of Rajasthan, we went to a city called Kota, and we heard a story when we got there, and they told us this, this local ministry, this Indian Christian ministry, they said that they had a Bible school, and one day they sent a bus with some Christian young people from that Bible school into a village. Now, India is in the 1040 window. That's an area denoted by the longitude and latitude, uh, latitude rather, and, it, and it, it's a place where there is very little, if any, penetration of the gospel. And so they went into one of the darkest villages in that province, these Christian uh, Indians, and they took with them New Testaments, and they got off that bus, and they began to engage with people in that village, tell them about Jesus, and came to them swiftly a mob. There came a mob with clubs, and they accosted them, and they began to rough them up, and they, they took the leader of this Christian group, and they tied him to a tree, and they took a coat hanger, and they attempted to force this coat hanger down the throat of this young man, and they then doused him with gasoline, and they went off to look for a match, and while they were distracted, the other Christians were able to loosen the bonds on this guy. They freed him from that tree. They all got back on the bus quickly and they left. And as they left, they were rolling out. This mob is chasing them, throwing stones, throwing sticks, and they threw their New Testaments out the window to the ground of that village and they got out of there with their lives. But the end of the story is this. The ringleader of that mob looked down. He saw a New Testament at his feet. He reached down. He picked it up. He put it in his pocket. Two weeks later, that Christian group, they're meeting, they're having a prayer meeting at that Bible college on that compound there in Kota. There was a knock at the door. They opened the door. It was this young man who was the ringleader of that mob, had in his hand a dog-eared copy of the New Testament. And he said, I want to know more about this Jesus. They invited him in. They led him to Christ. And you know what? At the time that I was told this story, 
that man was not only born again, but he was a pastor in the very village where they had first gone. Isn't that something? And what that tells you is persecution does not have the effect that it's intended to have on the church. Throughout history, persecution has been intended to eradicate Christianity, and all it's ever done is cause the church to thrive. You know when the church wanes, when the church decreases? It's not because of persecution. It's because of toleration. You know, it wasn't until the, the, the age of toleration when, when the Roman Empire became Christian and it was tolerated. That's when Christianity became very loose, very pagan, and it began to wane in its authenticity and its reach, its spread, okay? But overall, the church has outlived empires and, and totalitarian regimes and philosophical systems and such. But we also have expressed in Scripture something called the local church, and that's, that's where we are right now. This is a local church, a local New Testament church, the Lamb's Chapel, one of many in our county. And this is the expression of the church that God intends most for you and I to be together in community. Um, the first century Christians, when you read about them in Scripture, they're not just spoken of as being part of this large, global, invisible uh, group, Paul In 1 Corinthians, he wrote about the Galatian churches. And so this concept is presented that there are pockets of community throughout Asia Minor that that are individual churches. They are facets of the the global church, but they are individual churches with a a congregation, a, a, a unique body right there. How big are churches? They can range in size from, from just a handful to, to thousands. This is one of the larger churches that I've, I've been employed at. I've been at some larger ones even. I, I was on staff at a church that ran about 4,000 um, when I was a kid. My dad, who's a pastor, he left Oklahoma, took our family to South Dakota, and he pastored a church with 12 people. And people said, why did you leave a church of of 300 to go to a church of 12? He said it was a good enough number for Jesus. (laughs) And so he was there for 21 years. And so God can use churches of all sizes, all shapes. And within a group like this, what happens? We unite in love. We, We minister to each other. We minister with each other. We pray together. We worship together. We study the Bible together. Have we done all three of those things tonight? Yes, we have. So we're fulfilling our obligation as a local church. This is what we are to do. And it's comprised of people with unique gifts. And Paul writes about those gifts. And in Ephesians 4.12, he says, These are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And within the local church, there are ordinances. And you're familiar with them, even if you can't name them off the top of your head. One of these ordinances that we are, uh, we are compelled by Christ to do is the ordinance of communion. Now, we just took communion on Sunday. Where does that come from? Why do we do that? Look at Matthew 26, uh, verse 26. Jesus is with those disciples. It's, it's Passover. It's the night of his arrest. And he is dining with them, and as they were eating, it says in verse 26, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, uh, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the 
covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All right? So this is what we do. If you're here on a Sunday when we partake of communion, we've got these elements. We've got a little wafer that symbolizes the bread, which symbolizes the body of Christ. We've got a little cup. It's got some juice in there, which symbolizes wine, which symbolizes the blood that he shed for us. And we just partake of that. Why do we do it? We do it in your notes to remember Christ. Because Paul writes of this very moment that I just described from Matthew in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. Do this. That's an instruction. That's a command. Why do we do it? In remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. What are we remembering? We're remembering by those elements his work on the cross. He offered up his perfect body, his sinless body for us. That's what that bread represents. And he shed his blood. That's what that wine represents. It's it's blood shed as an atonement for sin. And so when we partake of that, we we are symbolizing something and we are remembering his work on the cross. Secondly, we do it because we're proclaiming Christ. We proclaim Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a proclamation. It's a testimony. I've known people who have come into a church not knowing anything about it, and they have watched the body The congregation partake of communion and they see what it symbolizes and if they do a good job, if the church explains what this is all about, God can use that to speak to them. He's proclaiming his truth to them and I've known people who have given their life to Jesus because of that. And there are other things, there's another ordinance we're going to talk about that's intended to have the same kind of effect. And so we proclaim him and then third, we represent Christ because when you partake of communion, which is an ordinance, Of the church, you are representing Christ. When we offer communion, we make it very clear this is not for everybody. We are not giving you a little, uh, you know, mid-service snack here. Okay? This is for believers only. It's for believers only because by partaking in this, you're making a statement. You are saying, I belong to Jesus. I believe in his death and atoning sacrifice for sin. And that is is a testimony. And so we, we don't... We don't uh, encourage non-believers to partake because we don't want them to lie because you're making a very strong statement, okay? And uh, you do this in proper fellowship with the church, just quickly to explain this. This is all part of the basics of, of being a part of the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who, names, uh, who, bear, uh, who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so when we talk about the ordinances of the church, uh, they are are only to be offered not only to believers— but to those who are in proper fellowship with a local body because there is a thing called church discipline. All right? 
Now, we've not exercised something like that since I've been here. It's not something that's pleasant, but there's a good purpose. The whole purpose is to recognize that that someone is engaging in something that is antithetical to Christ. It is detrimental to their own life and spiritual health. And so they are confronted with that sin, and it's dealt with in a very biblical manner. There are guidelines for that mapped out in Scripture. It's all done in the context of the New Testament local church. And the purpose is spiritual healing and restoration to fellowship. And that's what it's all about. But you don't partake of communion while you're undergoing that. You also don't partake of communion without self-examination. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks and uh, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Watch this. That is why, he says... Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Wow. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You say, Pastor Scott, what in the world does that mean? Well, apparently in Paul's day, there were people who would partake, they would partake of communion, but they would... They would do so in a manner that was not worthy, meaning they had, they had unconfessed sin in their heart. They had ongoing practices in their life that were unpleasing to God. And so they were partaking at the Lord's table in this ordinance without recognizing that sin and being penitent. And he was saying that at this time, people as a result are getting sick and some have even died. You say, does that mean that if I have unconfessed sin and I take communion, I'm going to die? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's a clear warning here, and there's, a, there's an importance that is placed on self-examination. And so when we partake of communion, that's an ordinance, which means very important. And so we need to take it very seriously. And so we need to use it as a time of reflection, not only what the Lord has done, but on what he's doing in our lives. Amen? And how often do we do this? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 26 has told us that, he, he says, for as often as you eat the bread, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim. All right, so as often as you do it, that's all he says. He doesn't give us any kind of set frequency. We tend to do it about every month. Uh, I've known some churches, they do it every quarter. I've been in churches that do it every week. And so there's no set frequency, but you do it every time you do it. You just recognize, I'm proclaiming the Lord, I'm representing the Lord, I'm remembering the Lord. Amen? So that's communion. That's communion. We got another ordinance that you're familiar with. It's called baptism. Baptism. Uh, we baptized here recently, going to do it again in August, and we do it right here in the service. That's one of my favorite kind of services. I love that, especially when people trust Christ, and that day they come down, they get, they get dunked for Jesus. That's my favorite. But why do we do it? Well, first of all, in your notes, it's a command. It's a command. Jesus was baptized, wasn't he? And so you would think that if the Lord Jesus Christ would be baptized, model something like that, then it would be important, don't you think? Uh, but it's also important because he commands his disciples to be baptized. You think of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go there, make, go therefore and make disciples, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to do all I've commanded you. And so baptism is a command. It's also in your notes a, a testimony. 
It's a testimony. Baptism is the visible mark of being a member of the church. And as such, it's only a believer that may do it. When you are baptized, you're, you, are, uh, you are making a profession of faith. That's why we invite people down spontaneously. If you've trusted Christ, you've never been baptized, maybe you got saved this morning, you come down. When you saw people in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, they would trust Christ, they would convert. If there was water available, they got baptized. They didn't have to take a class. They didn't have to tithe first. Okay? What was it? It was a public testimony. A public testimony. Baptism follows belief. It follows belief. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian. The water signifies a couple things. First of all, uh, it signifies the washing away of sin. That this is what Jesus did. He's washed my sins away. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, all right? But most importantly, it signifies dying and rising again with Christ. That's what is described. Romans 6, 3, and 5. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. That's a spiritual baptism. Into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so water baptism signifies spiritual death, the old nature, dies. When you put your trust in Christ, the old self is put to death and buried, right? You only bury something that's dead. You don't bury the living, I hope. <laughs> you bury the dead. And so you die, and, because, and to, to assure that you're dead, we bury you, all right? And then you come up, you rise from the dead. And so that's what baptism is a picture of. And because that's what it symbolizes, that means that the method matters. You following me? The method matters, which means, in your notes, it's by immersion. We teach water baptism, believer's baptism, which by definition is baptism by immersion. You see, the word baptized, the English word, comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means, guess what? To immerse, to put under, to submerge, okay? It's burial, right? How many of you have been to a, a graveside where they lower that casket down and they just sprinkle a few clods of dirt on that casket and they go, amen, and they walk away? They don't do that. They, they cover it up, don't they? And in Jesus' day, when people were buried in a tomb, they sealed that tomb. They put them, uh, they covered them, they, were, they hid them away. You baptize someone and they are hidden. They are put beneath the water, uh, to resemble burial. And so when you come up, it's a resurrection from the grave. And so it seems very clear that the method matters right here. Incidentally, this, is, this, is what me, uh, th this means that infant baptism is an unbiblical method. We don't baptize babies here. Uh, number one reason is, can babies come to faith in Jesus Christ? They cannot make that conscious choice. Baptism follows belief. Belief, all right? There's no conscious decision to follow Christ. And so the, the Bible does not record infants. Some people point to, well, you know, Cornelius and then his family all got baptized. 
Well, you're making a big stretch to say that's infant baptism right there. There's no clear uh, uh, recording of infant baptism in Scripture. Infant baptism started in the age of toleration when, when uh, the Roman Empire was all Christian. You know, when Constantine said, all right, everybody's going to be a Christian now. And they were concerned with, let's expand this Christian empire. And they thought, well, you know what would be an easy way to do that? If we would just baptize babies. And then they could be Christians. And so they started to baptize. And baptizo means immerse. So they started immersing babies. That's disastrous. You can't do that. And so that's when sprinkling came into play. And pouring came into play. So if you wonder where those methods started, that's where they started. There's no biblical reason. The word doesn't mean sprinkle or anything like that. Immersion alone is biblical. Uh, You want to know another piece of proof on that? Look at how Jesus was baptized. In Mark 1.10, after his baptism, it says, And when he came up out of the water, all right? That means that he was down in the water. And so he had to come up out of the water. He didn't have to get in the water to be sprinkled, okay? So the method is, is meaningful because of what it symbolizes. Does it save you? It does not. It symbolizes the inward baptism of the Spirit, which does save you. All right? And so it's important as a means of showing your commitment to Christ. I could tell you that my own son, Grayson, came to faith in Jesus because we had a conversation initiated by the sight of someone being baptized. He wanted to know what that was all about. And so we were able to use the picture of someone going down in the water and coming up to talk about this is what Jesus does when you trust him as your Savior. And he said, I want to do that. And so he got saved. It's a testimony. And it's an important component of our experience in community as the church. All right? So we're the people of God. Also in your notes, we're the family of God. We're the family of God. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is, that is relational language right there. You've got this concept of adoption that is presented in this verse. We, we, we became the children of God, which means we were orphans first. We didn't have uh, spiritual parentage first. He took us in. He made us his family And because God sees us as his family, that should play out into the way that we see and act toward each other. We got to see each other as family, all right? 1 John 4, 19 to 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, meaning you, you don't love God. If you hate your brother. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Right? This is what Jesus said to his disciples. People will know that you are my disciples in that you have love for one another. If you don't love your fellow Christian, uh, your testimony is in serious jeopardy. John 17, 11, Christ says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they, talking about his followers, not just the 12, but everyone who would ever become his follower, everyone who would become his children, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So there's to be a unity 
in the family. Families should have unity. You're like, well, you don't know my family. Yeah, but we know what the ideal of a family is, don't we? Uh, Paul goes on Ephesians 4, he says in verse 3, we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're unified by a Spirit, same Spirit that indwells you. Theoretically, I'm hoping it indwells the people on either side of you here tonight. And so you're unified spiritually, and that should play out in a practical way, that we should be able to have love toward one another. You can be as different as night and day from the person that you're standing next to. But because of the spirit of, of Christ that unifies you, there's a commonality there. There's a unity that is not achievable by human means. And so you are empowered by that spirit to have love for your fellow believer. And so God is our father, and he extends to us faithfulness and forgiveness and friendship. And that is what we are to extend to one another in the body, in the way that we communicate. Okay? And so... We can't have peace with God if we can't have peace with one another. And so we come together. And so that, that is God's paradigm that we are able to unite. Uh, and, and, and we are to gather. You know, I mean, there's a reason that you're here tonight. And I hope it's not just to hear this, yahoo. All right? I bet you you're here to see other people. I bet you came to eat some of Todd's cooking, didn't you? And to fellowship. And that is, that is wonderful. We come to fellowship. We come to draw close. We come to commune together and to pray and to study the word and to stir each other up to good works. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. <laughs> Even in Paul's day, people skip church. They skip church. But encouraging one another, he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How can you stir one another up to good works if you don't gather? You got to gather. I've shared this story before. There was a young man. He, he came to a church. He, he came to Christ. He, he caught fire for the Lord. He, he got very active in different ministry initiatives. He was consumed with reading his Bible. And then... Something happened in his life. There was something that, that came up and it distracted him. And he, he, he skipped church once and he skipped it a little bit more. And his attendance began to wane. And pretty soon his, his desires changed. He was not as on fire as he once was. And he, he wasn't really reading his Bible anymore. And he wasn't engaging in ministry anymore. And he just he didn't care as much about the things of God as he once did, as he did at the beginning of his journey. But he had a mentor at that church that cared about him, that reached out to him, an older man, and he invited him to his house, and it was a cold winter day. And this young man showed up, and the older guy was sitting in there next to a, a coal stove. And this young man came up and pulled up a chair and sat down, and they began to talk. And the young man just began to express, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know why I'm not on fire for the Lord anymore. I just... I just I don't know, I just don't care. I don't know when that happened for me. I can't explain it. And as he was talking, the older guy took some tongs, picked up a hot red coal from that stove and set it on top of that stove. And the young man looked at it. And as he was talking, he watched that coal turn from a, a bright red to a cool blue. And then that old man picked it up again, put it down in the stove next to a red hot coal. And as that young man was talking, he watched that, that cold blue coal suddenly burn bright red once again because it was in close proximity to a burning hot coal. 
And he understood. He understood exactly what happened. And when you are not in community, you grow cold. You grow cold. That is the devil's design. He is, he is a master deceiver. He will get you away from where you need to be so that you are not burning for the Lord, so that you are not effective for Christ. And I know a lot of churches got wrecked by the pandemic. Man, I think that did a huge number on Christianity, especially in America. And I think a lot of churches, and look, it was a tough time. We, we made decisions that we, you know, it was, it was just what we knew to do. is all we knew to do in a moment. We didn't want people to get hurt, get sick, die, things like that. And so we, we took precautions. But I do believe that over time, many churches did not prioritize and encourage reconnecting sooner rather than later. And uh, I think what happened is uh, there was a paradigm shift for a lot of folks, and they just decided, you know what, I can do church online. I don't need to come down there. I don't need to connect. And look, I'm grateful that we've got technology. I'm grateful that we can broadcast and be on YouTube and all these things, and, and I, I think that's a wonderful thing, and I think it's worth continuing to do. And you know, the truth is I think a lot of our people who are here in person also go back and they rewatch stuff because I talk too fast. All right? And I, I'm happy that we can, we can put it out there for folks on the coast or on the other coast that, that might tune in, and that's great. But let me tell you something. If you're down the street, if you're in this county, you need to get your tail down here. That's right. You are not experiencing God's best on your own. You're not experiencing God's best on your own. You need people. That's part of his design. You need people, and you need to be in the body life. And how can you serve if all you're doing is experiencing it from your sofa? You just can't do that. And we gotta, we got to grow that way because we are also, in your notes, we're the body of Christ. We're the body. It's, it's presented, the church, in Scripture as a body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. See, so there is an individuality to this, even though there is a collective nature to this. But we're, we're his body, you see. Christ considered a, considers us an extension of himself. When Saul of Tarsus, right, was on the way to Damascus, this is the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. He was not a preacher of the gospel. He was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christ and the cause of Christ. And he was the guy who arranged for the first martyr, the stoning of Stephen. He held the coats of the guys that, that pelted Stephen with rocks till he died. He hated Christians. And he's on the way to Damascus in the book of Acts to enslave more believers. And on the way there, God blinds him, knocks him off his horse, nearly kills him, and then the Lord Jesus speaks to him directly, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? My followers? No. He said, why do you persecute me? Now, had Saul ever met Jesus? No. He'd never met Christ. He was persecuting the church, but Jesus considers the church an extension of himself. We are his body. And the metaphor of the body illustrates the unity and the universality of the church. Think about your body and all the various parts. See, you're individuals of it, but you're part of a whole. All right? So all the parts of your body, think about the things that your hands can do. It's different from what your eyes can do. 
And what your eyes do is different from what your nose does. And what your nose does is different from what your tongue does. And what your ears do. And all of these different things. But what is it that controls all of the parts of your body? It's your head. It's your head. And Colossians 1.18 says, He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. And so when people look at the body... What does that draw attention to ultimately? It draws their eyes to the head. It draws their eyes to Christ. Or they look at what the body's doing and it turns them off so much they don't want to look at Christ at all. And so it's very important that we, the body, operate in a manner that is unified and that honors Christ and brings glory to him because what people see the body do forms their opinion of Jesus. And so we are one body built up in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the he gives us this whole list here of all these gifts. And I've already kind of teased that we're going to be studying spiritual gifts this year. In here on Wednesday night. I'm excited about that. But the place to use those gifts is not out there. It's in here. Because gifts, as as I'm going to show you, spiritual gifts are to edify the body. They're to build up the body. The church is not a place. It's a body. And we make up that body. And we edify one another. And we meet one another's needs. And we serve one another to the glory of God. That's what the church does. The church is not about the lost. It's about the redeemed. The lost are out there. We do the equipping and the, and the, the, the edifying in here. And then we leave here and we go out there. And we lead people to Jesus. All right? And so the church is to meet the needs of the church. When I say the church, I don't mean the staff. I don't mean the pastor. I mean church had a lady one time she comes up to me before a service and uh she said pastor she said i've got a bone to pick and i'm like oh good good that's great let me sit down and so she says do you have any idea where so-and-so has been and i i'll be honest i didn't i didn't even know that they were gone the church was a larger church kind of like this and i i don't know I don't notice when every single person might not be present. And so I said, no, tell me. And she said, well, they've been sick. They've been very, very sick. And I just want to know where the church has been. She said, do you realize I've had to go over there to their house every day and bring them food, soup, flowers. Our life groups had to bring like, you know, get well cards and and come and sit with them and and spend time with them. And I just want to know where the church has been. And I said, well, it, it sounds like the church has been exactly where it needs to be. You know? Because you're the church, you know? I mean, the, the church is not the staff. Now, the staff, want, we need to minister. I'm happy to minister whenever I've got an opportunity to do that. But look... Man, if I'm leading a church, if I'm shepherding a church, and the people in that church don't know how to meet the needs of one another, I'm failing. We need to be the body and edify one another. 
And we're more than that. We're also, in the scriptures, a holy temple. A holy temple in your notes. Paul emphasizes in Ephesians that we just completed a few weeks back that Jews and Gentiles alike are one in Christ. Now, in, in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, there was a wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews in the temple. Gentiles could not go in to the inner parts. They had their own court. They had to stay put, stay out there, separate, okay? And, and Paul gives this revolutionary idea of the church where <laughs> in Christ all are one. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are one in Christ. So that wall is abolished. And yet he, he replaces that idea of separation with the concept of a building. And in Ephesians 2.19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So we've got this architectural language here. Cornerstone which would refer to that primary foundation stone that was uh, at the angle of the structure. And so the architect would fix a standard off of that for the bearings of the walls and the cross walls throughout the whole structure. And Paul goes on, he says in verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows. Grows? Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Grows. Have you ever seen a building grow? It's weird, isn't it? We've got this architectural, you know, structural motif here, and then this organic term kind of creeps in there. You know, some, some buildings are designed to have this appearance of kind of being united with the landscape around it, like a Frank Lloyd Wright structure, something like that. But this, this is even beyond that. This is a structure that grows. How does it grow? It grows as new believers are added to the building. Churches struggle with that. They struggle with growth. They struggle when people come in, new believers, and they're added to the number. And people get really set in their ways. And they're not sure how to, how to receive these new people that are different from them. And that have different perspectives in them. And they don't see that there's a unifying thing here called the Spirit. But he says you got to get this. Because in verse 22, in him you also are being built together. Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in Him, no matter what you look like, no matter what your background is, no matter what you sound like, we all fit together. And Peter concurs with Paul. 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, you yourselves like living stones. Living stones. That's, that's a great name for a, a band, I think. The Living Stones. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, we got church buildings out the yin-yang here in America, man, but the only church building in the New Testament is a building made of people. That's it. I'm not saying buildings are bad. Super grateful for our building, but the building, the, the only church building in the New Testament is a building of people, and the Holy Spirit inhabits that, and we grow together. So we're a temple. But we're also, as we wrap this up, we're the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. You remember this from Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're the bride. 
And in your notes, the church exists by his love. He laid his life down for the church. This is his bride. He loved the church, gave himself up for her. We're presented as the bride. The book of Revelation uh, has this beautiful picture of a wedding where the, the church, the bride of Christ, is presented collectively and finally at this incredible marriage ceremony to none other than Jesus Christ. And I talk about this at every wedding uh, ceremony that I officiate at. I, I was a young adults pastor for over a decade back in Modesto, California, which meant I ended up doing a lot of weddings. Because when you pastor young adults, a lot of them are single when they come in there for the first time and then they, they pair up. And then they want to get married. And so they ask Pastor Scott you know, to, to perform the ceremony. So, Phil Harden, get ready, buddy. As we launch our young adults ministry, this could happen. That's exciting. But I would always share this story. I'd look at that beautiful young lady and that, that handsome fellow there in his tux, and I'd say, we are being presented here, folks, to a beautiful picture of a wedding yet to come. And I look at that beautiful bride in radiant white, and I say, miss, you represent the bride of Christ. You represent the church. Purified by Christ. Prepared, lovely, ready to be received by the groom. And you, sir, young man, no pressure, buddy, you represent Jesus. <laughs> and so you're going to love this woman like Jesus loved the church. You know what that means? You get to die for this woman. You get to lay down your life for her. You sacrifice everything for her. But really, even though that, that preaches quite well at a wedding, this language here is more specifically tied to the Jewish wedding custom. You see, that's when the groom first pays a dowry for that bride. He pays a price. You, you, you got you to pay to marry this woman. You pay the family. All right, So there's an engagement. There's a betrothal. And the bride receives a promise as a result of a future time of, of joy and happiness with her husband. That act of betrothal for the bride of Christ was initiated with Jesus' death at Calvary. He paid a price. And so there was an engagement there. We became engaged to Christ at Calvary. And so we are the future bride of Christ. And so we, are, we have a promise of blessing. We've got a future life of happiness with Christ. Paul goes on in Ephesians. He says, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so what this means is not only does the church exist for uh, by rather his love, but we exist for his purpose. We exist by his love, but we exist for his purpose. See, there's a purpose in verses 26 to 27 here. And the purpose is that we be made holy, that we be purified. When? In this life. And Christ, excuse me, Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All right, so back to that Jewish wedding analogy. Uh, you got this groom, he's paid a dowry for the bride, he's paid a price, and then what would happen is, he would go back to his father's house, and he would start there with his friends, and they would begin a procession, and they would journey, they would travel 
toward the house of the bride. And there would be this torchlight parade that would commence in the street. This, this journey of celebration, this, this uh, revelry as he comes for the bride. And the bride knows he's coming. She knows in advance. And so what's she doing in the meantime? He's coming. What am I doing? I'm getting ready. I'm getting prepared. She's got all her friends with her. And so they're in community there. They know feast is going to commence soon. And at that time, the bride is going to take the bride, excuse me, the groom is going to take that bride where? Back to his father's house. You tracking? You with me on this? So what's happening right now? The church, the bride of Christ, is living in anticipation of the coming of the groom. And what are we to do? We are to prepare. We are to pull everyone around us and, and be prepared, be made ready, which means we are being sanctified right now. This is the time that we are to spend preparing for the day we will meet Christ. Our dowry has already been paid by that bridegroom. Now we're with one another and we are preparing to meet him. That's what gathering is all about. That we sharpen one another, that we sanctify ourselves in the presence of one another, that we become more holy in the sight of the Lord, in whose name we meet, in whose name we gather, whose word we study, to whom we pray, the one we are trying to become like, because he's coming. But he's not here yet. And so the preparation continues. And so we gather together and we fellowship. And we are good stewards of the time that we're given. You know, the church doesn't always resemble a beautiful bride. Sometimes she looks a little smudged. She looks a little imperfect. The hair is a little frazzled sometimes, you know? She's still the bride of Christ. Still the bride of Christ. People get, people get turned off about church. They're like, ah, I'm not going down there. I got my feelings hurt down there one time. People disappointed me. You wouldn't believe how many hypocrites, Pastor, are down there at that church. Do you have any idea the hypocrites that are down there? You know, it's like, man, I'm not going to that gym. There's fat people at that gym. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many out of shape people are at that gym. Yeah, I know. I, I, I go to that gym. All right? That's the whole reason I'm there. The bride is not perfect, right? But his design is for us to be together so that we, be, we become more perfect in this process of sanctification. And then he's going to make us perfect. Amen? So don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's the design of a holy God, all right? And that's the basics. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a blueprint, a pathway, and we embark, God. And we just want to grow to be more like you, Jesus. And so we pray your blessing on everybody here as we each embark individually on our journeys, but we do so as well collectively, as part of an entity much bigger than ourselves, because that's your design, that we grow in community, and we become better than we could ever be on our own. And ultimately, you perfect it. And we pray this blessing upon this church in Jesus' name, amen.